Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to the New York Times podcast. Your We Right Here, dog, a music news and criticism. I'm your host, John Caramonica. It has been a very anxious week waiting for updates about DMX, knowing that he was in the hospital, knowing that he was in a precarious state. We're recording this on Friday afternoon. Uh, DMX passed away this morning. He was 50 years old. If you didn't live through it, it may be hard to fathom just how titanic a presence DMX was in rap music in the late 90s and early 2000s. Here was someone who was relentless, uncompromising, signature aesthetic, forceful, dexterous lyricist, penitent, prayerful, macho, aggressive, just so many different things embodied all in one performer. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Smokey Fontaine. Smokey co-authored DMX's autobiography with him back in the early 2000s. So we're going to get deep on X's career and life uh, and, and childhood and various stories that would help give context for the performer and artist that DMX became. I did want to share just a couple of things. I, I never had the fortune to, to interview X. I did write about him and his music quite a bit, but I never had the fortune to interview him. But in my appraisal in the paper, I talked about the first time that I saw DMX pray on stage. And just to share a little bit more about that, Cash Money Rough Riders Tour in 2000 was just the biggest, most epic tour that you've ever seen in life at that point. It was a mind-blowing thing. I saw it twice. The first time, I'm pretty sure it was in Baltimore. I don't know why I went to Baltimore to see it. And I remember I, I had parked in the parking lot, and I was really stressed because I had to drive back to New York. And I was like, oh, I can't be stuck in the parking lot after the show. So I had started kind of making my way towards the exit right as DMX's set was coming to a conclusion. And I was close. The The exit was near the stage. You're almost like kind of at the foot of the stage. And I kind of hit the door almost. And that's when X starts praying. And I just stopped cold. Just had never seen anything like that. Never experienced it. It was such a jolt of a feeling. So intense. So physical. So emotional. It was overwhelming. And I definitely got stuck in the parking lot that night because there's just no way I could turn away from that. It was just an unreal channeling of faith and hard-earned wisdom and tragedy all put together. It was crazy, very intense, very, very, very intense. 
every time you go to a DMX concert, there's a prayer. And it was never any less moving the way that X rapped and spoke, the the gruff tone in his voice, the certainty of his speech, the intensity of the pattern. It's impossible to do anything but be absorbed by it. The other thing, and this is a little bit lighter, even though I didn't interview DMX, I did edit an interview with DMX. It's my first issue when I worked at Vibe in 2006. Toshi Kondo, who was known for very pugnacious, kind of uh, rowdy interviews with artists, had interviewed DMX. And it was just a, I, I reread it. I'll pull it up. You know, I was asking him about smack DVDs and beefs with Jay-Z. And the thing I love about this interview, like with all DMX interviews, is just how unvarnished it is. He's talking extremely greasy about L.A. Reid. And when he came in the office, this was his DMX talk. When he came in the office, I don't know how he did it, but it came in with wind. So his scarf was like, and then the action of like a scarf blowing behind him. He wasn't even walking, feet gliding like he was on a dolly. What a tremendous image of L.A. Reid. Not necessarily a kind one, but a tremendous one. Also in this interview, DMX says that he never wears flip-flops. Thugs don't do flip-flops. I'm never that comfortable, not even in my own house, which may seem like off the cuff and kind of like maybe even like a little bit funny, but there's a real almost like there's a tragic underpinning to that, the, the notion that you can never be that comfortable, even in your own home. Smokey, the book that Smokey worked on with DMX is called Earl, the Autobiography of DMX, and it really provides all the backstory that you need to understand about how Earl Simmons grew up and became DMX. So on with us right now from LA, it's Smokey Fontaine. Smoke, I'm happy to have you on podcast. I'm I'm furious at the reason, but welcome. I'm happy you're here. John, well, 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 thank you. And doesn't it always work like this? This is this is how reunions come, right? And this is a reunion for you and I. And congrats on what you've been doing. But oh man, a, a tough day today. For a little context, one of my first magazine jobs was at Trace Magazine, which was a, a music magazine that was based in London and also had a New York office. And Smoke, we're talking like 1998, and Smoke was the music editor of Trace back in the day, which is when we first crossed paths. And, and then we crossed paths a bunch in the subsequent years. And now Smoke is off doing big things at Apple. But during Smoke's time in New York, in a similar era, 99, 2000, you wrote the two kind of key source magazine cover stories on DMX. And then that led to you co-writing Earl, the autobiography of DMX. So you're on the front lines, man. You were there. You know, it, I was. And, and it's funny you bring up Trace Magazine because I left Trace to go to the source. And right at the end of 97 and 98 was when the DMX era began. And I think it's fair to describe it as that. And my first real piece for the source, I came in to save the day with an interview <laughs> we had scheduled with him, with a good other colleague of ours, Chris X, who came hey. back to our New York office. Shout out to Chris X. Shout out X. Shout out X. said, this dude DMX is crazy. You know, we went we went out drinking and he made it home, but Chris X did not. I he know this no story. story. Yeah. Yes, I know and, this story. <laughs> you know, I, I know was that uh, <laughs> bright eyed. I don't, I don't know if I was bushy tailed, but I was certainly bright eyed. I was like, I'll try it. 
and uh, jumped on a plane to L.A. that night. And, you know, that started all. It was the first cover story he had ever done. And it was the first of three that I wrote on DMX for The Source back in 98. You and I watched it happen in real time. I don't think everybody who's listening will fully understand how big it got and how fast it got that big. So could you offer a little perspective on the kind of like coming out of the posse cuts into get at me dog into the first album, how quick that was happening. It whiplash through every hood in America. It really, this sound, this, this energy, this just kind of voice. You like, who is that? When you would hear DMX on the radio and he always, as you say, started with posse cuts. He was always last. He was the anchor. He was like, there's nobody following me, dog. That's it. Like, and you would just wait for him to come on. And whatever the track was, the energy level went up. Whatever the track was, like the volume went up without you even touching it. He was growling. He was barking. And what he was saying, it felt like he was he was almost dying for every lyric, John. I hate to use that expression, but he was like, this is my moment. Like, listen to this lyric right now. It's urgent. And that was so different from what we were all rocking to. And there wasn't a diss to what we were rocking to, you know, the shiny suit era as it's now been, you know, kind of coined. But it was just like, oh, this is a voice and an identity and a person that that we haven't seen in hip hop in so long. And I want that. Like, he's me, you know, because I couldn't afford the suit. But DMX had no suit. I could afford (laughs) what he's wearing. You know, and so maybe I uh, felt more kinship with the with the X uh, outfit than than the puffy outfit. Let's listen to just a touch of DMX's verse on Twenty Four Hours to Live, which is a Mace record that he has just an incredible verse on. Let's listen to a touch of that. Twenty four left until my death, so I'm gonna waste a lot of life, but I'll cherish every breath. I know exactly where I'm going, but I'ma send you there first. And with the that I'll be doing, I'ma send you there worse. I've been living with a curse, and now it's all about to end. But before I go, say hello. I think you can't overstate what was going on in hip hop 1990, certainly like 97, but even really going back to like 94, 95, the sort of stranglehold that Puff had over the aesthetics of what was happening in New York. And what's, of course, ironic is X had always been kind of on the margins, always been at the fringes. You know, he had a, a single on Rough House that kind of didn't go anywhere. And then he's on, on a Mike Geronimo record and kind of like getting in where he's fitting in. But the scene as a whole doesn't really have room for him. But then at a certain point, Def Jam is like, ah, we have the antidote to all this. You're going to be the antidote to all this other stuff that's happening. You know, it, it really was. I mean, you know, Puffy was the brightest star. Right. He wanted to shine brighter than anyone we'd ever seen. And he did that. You know, he he did that. And X came out. He says, I'm the dark star. I'm the exact opposite. Like when you're up there, dog, do your thing. But I'm over here. And, and where over here was, was with real people who had real struggles where life wasn't good. You know, life was hard. And and Puffy reflected a kind of a blackness and an achievement that was, you know, incredibly attractive and meant a lot, but X had no interest in projecting something that wasn't him, that he didn't experience. And he poured, you know, he was 27, 28 years old already by then. So he wasn't just some new kid on the block. He had been rapping and rhyming and and running and gunning for a long time. And he was like, this is just who I am. 
And if it affects one person, then I've done my job. And he said that to the first thing out of his mouth he ever said to me. The first moment we met was, I'm, I don't want sales, I want souls. Oh, wow. Literally, John, like the first, I walk into a recording studio with pit bulls running around and the music crazy and just like, you know, a, a, a hip hop studio, New York City scene. And the first thing out of his mouth is, dog, I don't want sales, I want souls. And I was like, this dude is different. <laughs> and it's striking because I think one of the things that I remember so vividly about the mid 90s, obviously, like you look at hip hop now, it's a multi-layered thing. You have subsets and sub-subgenres and tributaries off the other tributaries. It's a very complicated, multi-layered world. At that time, it felt like Puff was taking the whole thing in his direction. And also to a, to a certain degree, you know, what was happening out West, but it felt like the whole thing was going with Puff. And so when DMX comes out, you're like, oh no, this is like the revenge of 1991 coming back and being like, no, 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 we're not going to let y'all do that. Like this is, mm -mm, we right here. We're not going anywhere. The thing with X is that he insisted that it would happen. You know, DMX insisted that he would have this moment and he wasn't comparing himself to anyone. In fact, he could care less what was hot, what was on the radio. You know, he had already heard the you can't sell if you do this or you won't be successful if you sound like that. And the triumph of his career, even at that first record, getting those first songs on the radio, getting that first deal. He was unequivocal. It was like, you know, he didn't have to change anything about himself. In fact, he just rolled off the street into the studio, from the studio onto a video set to a performance. And it was same thing. There was no marketing angle applied to none of that. They just captured it. When you were having those interactions with him for the first cover story, how forthcoming was he about what he had been through? his childhood, like all that, all that kind of like classic first profile subject matter. Was it hard for him to talk about? Was it a tug of war? What do you remember about how he, how he talked about those things? He was so ready to express himself. He wanted to get it out. He was like, you know, people just don't know who I've been. And he was very clear. It wasn't there wasn't a, a path of discovery. I think his career discovered other things, but the core of who he was, you know, this idea that he had gone through a life of pain, his music was a direct expression of that pain. And the only reason he was doing that was so he could help other people not suffer the way he did. That was first night. And I'd never as a journalist experienced that type of clarity. DMX had a harrowing childhood like a genuinely i mean you read the passages in the early parts of the of the autobiography and it's hard not to to feel gut punched by them i mean you know an abusive mother abusive a physical abuse from other people in the household other people brought into the household x being a smart kid but basically learning that you know he had all this energy that was being not accessed in school so he starts acting out starts getting institutionalized in group homes and juvenile facilities by the time he's seven for the first time it's overwhelming and i wonder when you were talking to him about that how did he frame that did he frame that as kind of like badge of honor did he frame it as regretful how did he talk about those things 
he was understanding that he couldn't avoid what had happened to him, but he didn't want sympathy. You know, he, he knew it made him stronger and it, he felt that it gave him a purpose. Like this was what he had to go through. Who used to say, you got to walk through to talk to. And he's like, that's why people will listen to me because I am them. I've been there. There's nothing that anybody could tell me that I haven't been through. And, and so he wasn't proud of that, but it, it gave him a confidence that, you know, his ability to connect would be really high. And he felt that that was a blessing. His, his spirituality was there on night one, John. This idea that, you know, there's no other reason for me to be here because God has let, spared my life so many times. And that pain, I mean, I would look at him and, and ironically it was... You know, we we connected with some of that, to be quite honest, in a very different way. But there was a loneliness there. You know, there was an isolation there. You know, he would say, look, I really don't like people that much because they've, they've done nothing but let me down. They've left me by myself. They haven't loved me. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it didn't take me long to kind of scratch scratch the surface a little with him to get him into a very emotional place because he, he, he wore it. He's a very sensitive dude. You know, and so some of the things he went through as a kid, John would, you know, you could argue, maybe, you know, happens to a lot of us. I mean, he's not the only kid to grow up in, in the 70s and 80s, single parent and, and not have much. And, you know, and so his story wasn't unique in that way, but it really affected him. Like it really bothered him that his mother would, you know, not let him back in the house or send him away. But he used that. And that's the art. In rereading this book, I was struck by the parallels between the early childhood portion and the early career portion, because both of them really detail what felt to me like these kinds of false starts that then get snuffed out. And when he's a child, it's the false start of getting affection from someone or doing well in school or receiving attention from his father or something. Then it's immediately kind of like his knees get kicked out from under him. Something bad happens. So by the time he gets the early career phase, which is, you know, the early 90s into the mid 90s, and he's like almost has a meeting with such and such a label or signs a bad management contract or and then it doesn't go anywhere. It's like you see this kind of like consistent pattern that's happened ever since he was a child, a five or a six-year-old. The big triumph of his career, and I, and he would say this, and the, the last conversation him and I had, he, he said something similar, which is, you know, the love he did get from, from his fans was not anonymous to him. Look, that may be true for many artists. In fact, you and I both know it is, but it's often a commonplace thing to say, oh, my fans, I, I wouldn't be here without my fans. But there is a visceral connection that X felt with the people who loved his music and he appreciated the fans that knew his lyrics and not the lyrics to get at me dog or party up or the hit records, the club records. He didn't care about any of that, but the fans who come up to him and recite his lyrics to the prayers and to the Damien's and to the slippins and to the let me fly. Woo. He would be like, yo dog, like it, it would bring him to tears. Like, yo, that's me. You heard what I was trying to say. And, you know, he'd, he'd just sit there right with you, whoever you were, a homeless man on the street. He'd sit right with him, come out, you know, pull over in a car, pull over in a, a fleet of Mercedes Benz to go sit with a homeless dude on the street and not just give him a dollar and say good luck. Like sit there for an hour with some dude who would begin to tell him his story. 
of how he's on the street. Be like, yo, dog, I was on the street too. Like, I get it. Or at 3 a.m. at a club when it should be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll part are put to the side because he has 20 you know, nightclub ladies sitting there talking about God. Like, who does that? No, and that's that that vulnerability, that public vulnerability. It, it's so striking in his music and in any concert I ever saw him in, any time I saw a video, you see it. And we get inured to famous people kind of like performing vulnerability, if you know what I mean. Like, it's like part of the character. There's no performance in it you really get the sense that he is just as unguarded in the booth as he is on the stage, as he is at the drive through as he is on the corner unguarded. Jay-Z also maybe a few years after, but you know, some of their career kind of paralleled and Jay-Z is as gifted as they come as a lyricist and, and businessman and all of that. But I described them very differently. I, I, I described Jay-Z as a narrator, an amazing narrator. But Jay's the dude standing at the back telling you the story. He's a griot. And he, and he tells the story like nobody else can because he sees it and he observes it, you know, and affects us in that way. DMX was a participant. He was, he was the guy Jay was talking about. You know what I mean? Like he was in there. And so he's describing what he's going through from the center out in an interesting kind of way. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, he, you know, when he got later in his career, when he started doing movies, he was like, yo, this movie is so easy. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, like acting, that's like nothing. He's like, yeah, I run around and have fun. And, you know, he's playing himself, you know, all his characters in the movies are essentially DMX, you know, running around with a gun and doing fun stuff. But so he was, he was, didn't even have to act. It was himself, but he's like, but in my music, I pour everything I have into an album. He's like, I'd do 10 movies before I do one more album. Plus wow. it pays a little better. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but that's, but wow. But that's, that's powerful. The idea that the level of kind of like emotional expurgation that he needed to go through to get to access those songs. That's heavy. That's heavy, man. Mm. You know, so many of the lyrics, certainly for those first, I'd say three albums easily. And, you know, the first two came out in 1998, same year. First artist got two number ones in the same year. I don't know if that's happened since. Maybe BTS. You know, it was just like, I got these all written down. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I've, I've had these. Like, they're all written down. He's like, you know, you got 10 more. He's like, dog, I got like, I, whatever you need. Like, I've been writing this, this for years. And that was kind of a badge of honor. He's like, dude, I just, you know, that rhyme, that, that 16 I just gave, I wrote that, you know, nine years ago. And this, it, I told you it was hot. They, nobody said it was hot <laughs> then, but I told you that verse was hot. So, oh, man. We should listen to Slippin', actually, because I feel like that's really the emblematic, like that's the touchstone DMX looking inward song. So let's listen to a little bit of that. I've been through mad different faces, like Macy's, to find my way. And now I know that happy days are not far away. If I'm strong enough, I live long. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. You and I both know what it's like to chase somebody who doesn't want to be interviewed. <laughs> that's that's par for the course, especially from the 90s. That's that's That was par for the course. But X was like particularly slippery. And sometimes you get the sense in, certainly I think in your second source cover, where there's something elusive about him. Like it's like when you get him, he's given you what you need, but there's something kind of almost inaccessible about him because he's like very much operating in his own headspace can you talk a little bit about the chase and like locking it in because i know that that wasn't easy i don't know if it gave me a style john as an interviewer or i had to adapt to the style of you know literally just fading into the background and i needed an initial okay like are you okay with me being here once i got that the second thing was then well then then are you gonna ride or die like are you riding and I had to say yes to both things. I had to get a, I had to I had to get a yes on the first one. He's cool. He can come in. And then the second one I had to say yes to, which means everything it actually says literally. Like that means wherever we're going, we're going. Wherever however fast he's driving, we're driving. Whatever neck of some woods we're going to end up in, like if you're with me, you're with me. And if he turned around and I wasn't there, then I'm outside the proverbial velvet rope. Then it's like, well, now you need another access pass and I'm actually not giving it to you right now. So you're cut off. So you talk about like availability. It was so, you know, my anxiety level was so high. I was like, let me just get in and like never leave. And, you know, that was uh, during the book. That was hardcore because it took us, you know, a solid year being on the road to get it from him. But I'll tell you this, the amount of one-on-one conversations we had in the traditional interviewer and subject experience, I could count on one hand. I totally understand because it's like X is someone who I, I think it's atmospheric as much as it's discursive, right? It's you want to be in the room when he's being the most DMX, but you're not likely to get that if you're sort of looking at him and saying, can you please be the most DMX right now? And and he would tell his stories. If you were close enough, the stories would be there. So you just had to capture it. And in fact, he said, you know, he told me that he said, you're going to have to catch it without catching it. And I, and I remember at the very beginning of the book, I said, Are you, well, I'm going to have a microphone in my pocket. Are you cool with that? And he's like, mm. 
and did his kind of growl thing. And I was like, dude, that's the, old, I'm not going to be able to remember this stuff. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, all right, you know, cool. And luckily we had baggy, you know, baggy clothes were in then. So the baggy <laughs> jeans and the oversized shirt. And so I had a little microphone, you know, this pre iPhone, I had a little microphone and a mini disc recorder in my pocket with the little microphone hanging out. And every now I had the mini disc placed just so, so we'd be, or he'd be talking or we'd be hanging out and the story would start. And I would just reach in my pocket and just press record and hope when I got home late that night that I actually did it right. Because it wasn't a red light. You know, I couldn't yeah, check you it. Couldn't check I was it. paranoid. You couldn't check it was it. like, you know, uh, it was like contraband, that that tape recorder. And, you know, by the end of like, you know, after two years, I think one of his road managers like, I know you're recording all this, right? You're not slick. And I was like, hey, <laughs> you haven't busted me yet. I've been recording y'all for like a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me how did the book come about? Was this something that HarperCollins had gone to him and said, we want a, an X book, and then they brought it to you? Did you broach it with him? Because you already clearly had the rapport, but doing this, like the intensity of detail in this book, this is a lot of labor. So tell me about who agreed first. How did the kind of process go? I'm hoping I get this right, but I, I think it was my idea. Um, cause I, do, you know, I do remember asking him, I said, you know, in, in, in the indirect kind of conversation we would have, I said, yo dog, this would make a crazy book. And he would nod. And for me, I knew enough that that small nod meant, well, let's go explore this. Ray Copeland, his uncle, uncle Ray, as he's affectionately known has, has been with him this whole time. And I think he was there and heard that and he said, Hey, you know, we've actually had an agent and, and we've been talking about this a little bit and we really had no idea how we'd ever pull it off. And then, you know, my book agent pitched it to Harper Collins and, and, and they jumped in, but you know, it became, I honestly don't know what Harper's expectations were. I think they were expecting more of a rock and roll type of book. And, you know, generally speaking, I saw it more as a, as a life story of, of a black man growing up in Yonkers in you know late seventies, early eighties, and and the story of a of a boy and a family and a mom and, and all of that. And to me, the hip hop part was the was the outcome and kind of the. I actually had to do a lot of work. I think my first draft didn't have enough hip hop in it. They were like, "This is a great story, but you know we need we need some you know sizzle in here." And you know we added that kind of towards the end. And all this, all the kind of childhood stuff, like. I assume that's you piecing stuff together from multiple different conversations, multiple different engagements with him. It was. And it was also, you know, over, I think it's over 400 hours of tapes. And, you know, don't, don't add, don't add, I won't admit that ever again. That, that's bringing back <laughs> trauma to transcribe that. I'm traumatized on your behalf. Uh, yeah, I think I was the only one in the world who could, who could transcribe his uh, very distant rumblings in the back of, a, of an audio recording in his cadence. But he did halfway through, maybe even earlier than that, he actually gave me permission to go seek out his family, who weren't that hard to find. I mean, his mom was essentially just sitting there in Yonkers, where she'd been for many years, and, you know, kind of get my investigative journalism on and, and go kind of pound the pavement and talk to his mom and talk to his uncles and go to Yonkers and, you know, go by the jail and just get a sense of where he was. And I would come back to him and report back. Yeah, you know, I remember one day the first time I met his mom and I came, you know, back to where he was and and he said, you know, what am I what, how is my mom? And he hadn't spoken to her in years at that time. And I said, Well, she says she loves you. And he just broke down crying. And I was like, Oh man. Like, you know, I felt good that I was doing that or helpful, but 
I mean, literally, it was as quick as that. Man. Well, I mean, having read the book, I, you, I, it's easy to understand why that would be a overwhelming sentiment for him to reckon with after the, the childhood that he had and after the challenges that they had. Did you travel a lot with him for the book? I did. We, we essentially did a, a tour, a movie, and the recording of an album. It was, we went on the Limp Biscuit tour, or I hey. joined him on the Limp Biscuit tour, which was pretty insane. We did Exit Wounds was the film and the recording of the Great Depression with the kind of three events. I think we and, need uh, to listen to, I'm so sorry to everybody, but I do think we need to listen to Roland Urban Assault Vehicle by Limp Biscuit, featuring DMX, Method Man, and Red Man. We just got to get a little bit of a little taste of that just to let kids know what t- the year 2000 was like. <laughs> it just don't get no talking in that kid with the park or uh, head with the boots to make a spark. Now I'm a fin, but ain't dead more quicker than the head. So if you dead, it'll be like your man trying to hold your brain to your head. But you can none yourself because you already dead. So you were kind of riding shotgun. He's still very much at the peak. Again, to just reiterate, DMX, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Really up until, I want to say almost maybe up until volume three or the blueprint from Jay. This is like the definitive New York rap sound and the definitive like global rap sound, really. It was, and it wasn't the first example of rap being the pop music internationally, but it was one of the loudest ones in a while. So he was the star of that that tour by a long way. And you would say, well, what's the crossover between Limp Bizkit fans and DMX fans? Well, they love the emotion and the catharsis and the just go all outness of it. And so to see, you know, a crowd of predominantly, you know, 20,000 white kids who are kind of rock and roll you know, Limp Biscuit fans, you know, and he would open, you know, X would open and, and he would kill him with all of his hit after hit and just the emotion and they all, but he, but he'd still pray. He would still end it with the prayer and whether that was the Apollo theater or the middle of, you know, El Paso, Texas, like that is why he was there. And he was a hard act to follow. I tell you, they'd walk down the, the you know, the hallway in the, in the guts of these arenas and Limp Bizkit would be like, oh man, X killed it again. <laughs> yeah, we're getting, we're getting <laughs> eaten at our own show. Yeah. We're getting I mean, eaten. You know, they, they pulled it off, but it was, it was like, oh man. You made a distinction earlier between the kind of club oriented records and the sort of more reflective contemplative records. Let's listen to one of the club records. Let's listen to Party Up up in here for a sec. Y'all gonna make me lose my DMX did have this gift for this kind of record, this kind of like pneumatic drill, intense, just like inciting mayhem. I was looking at Action Bronson's Instagram story and he was playing one of the one of these songs and he was just like, you'd hear this song and you would like want to drive off a bridge. And I'm like, I totally remember being in the car when DMX songs came on and I'm like, all of a sudden I'm doing 110 on the FDR drive, like just like out of nowhere. But you were saying that he maybe didn't either didn't care about those songs as much or didn't invest in those songs as much as the other ones. Tell me about his kind of conception of the two different sides of what he was doing and the songs that made him so big. 
Swiss Beats, his his you know longtime producer, would tell stories, and and D and Y, you know, Rough Riders bosses would tell stories of almost every hit record X didn't want to do. You know, even going back to like <laughs> Get At Me Dog or you know Rough Riders Anthem. You know, Irv Gotti would tell the story of how you know he had to almost force them to do what these chicks want, which was a massive pop hit. You know, X was like, I don't want to do this. It's it's whack. It's shallow. But what happened, and I think this is a genius of the producers who were with him at the time, Swiss, PK, Grease, Grease, you know, yeah. did pen a lot of those hits, was that they said, you know what, it, it actually doesn't have to be whack because the sound of it, you know, it's an urban hood ghetto sound that, that is an, those are anthems, you know, and, and you couldn't call what Puff had anthems. They were party records, but they were, you know, they lasted a season and, and that was great. But, you know, X's joints just made you feel a different way. And they were very male. You weren't dancing to them like you were thugging it out to them. But, you know, the high energy, the up-tempo-ness, party up is is has the heavy BPMs, you know. And, and that kind of allowed it to cross over in a way I think that was probably unexpected. But that's not what he would bump in his truck, you know. And... Over time, he appreciated that's what brought the people in, and he loved having more people in so he could talk to more people. You know what's interesting, John? He, he some artists don't ever listen to their music, so X only listened to you know a certain part of his catalog. But he was an artist who listened to his own music, and in fact, he listened to more of his own music than anyone else. He would listen to his music and old school seventies when I was with him, and nothing else, because that's what resonated with him. And he would listen more to the prayerful stuff than the party stuff. Yeah, he'd play his prayer for himself. It was his prayer, you know. And I was just like, like that, you know, whatever mood he was in, he would throw on, or or I would throw on, or security would throw on one of his own songs to reflect, or maybe to maybe improve his mood. And he would go into that space, and you'd see him reciting his lyrics in his head. He was telling his own story over and over again and you know that was incredibly powerful to see the meaning that music had for him and i asked him that question in our last last time i saw him i said you know can you ever put to words what music is meant for you and i rarely give him pause but that that question did give him some pause and he was like i can't and he's like dog i'm pretty good putting things to words but what music means to me it saved my life and it it is it is such the expression of who i am it was it was his vehicle. We should listen to the prayer, the skit from the first album from It's Dark and Hell is Hot. Let's listen to that for a second. And I almost lost faith when you took my man, Monty, Paso, and Dre's brother Dan. And I fear that what I'm saying won't be heard until I'm gone. But it's all good because I really didn't expect to live long. So if it takes for me to suffer, for my brother to see the light, give me pain till I die. But please, Lord, treat him right. In the appraisal piece that I wrote about X, I, I wrote about watching the prayer live, you know, on the Cash Money Rough Riders tour and in subsequent concerts. And I used to think of those prayers as a gift that he was giving the audience, right? Like I used to think of it as like he he knew, like you say, he wanted souls. He saw 20,000 people. He's like, I'm going to tell you something about redemption and grace and suffering in the Lord. And as I was thinking more about it over the last few days, I also realized it was this incredible kind of back and forth where he's offering this to the audience, but also 
all of a sudden you have 20,000 people praying with you and in a way praying for you. And it's, it's this, the incredible dynamic of feeling kind of like bathed in that prayer, but also looking at this man on stage who is vulnerable, who is like has gone through it and wanting to kind of help him to pray with him, to give him that strength. Did he ever talk about it in those terms, not just in terms of the giving, but the getting? Yes. And it's a really interesting way you put it. There was an exchange. I don't think initially it kind of evolved over time. I think that there was a period in his career where he's probably pretty cynical about it. Like, you know, he didn't know what to do with the love. He's like, oh, I don't deserve this love. Like, I'm clearly getting it. I've now been in front of 15,000 people putting up the X, you know, reciting my prayer. And I, and I think it freaked him out a bit as it would for a lot of folks like, whoa, 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 like why, you know, why am I getting this? Where is it coming from? What does it actually mean? Is it real? Like, you know, you can't touch it. It is intangible, right? You're, you're an artist on stage. You can't see the crowd, <laughs> you know, the lights are in your face. You're, you're, you don't see anything, you know, until they turn the lights up. And that's why some artists do turn the lights on. I need to see who's in here. Right. And, and so I think that, that it took him a minute to figure that out. But once he accepted that it was real, that was his fuel. You know, and and it wasn't the fuel of like 20,000 individuals. It was just he felt that he had won. He felt that he had had achieved something that he could have never imagined. And that was he was a vehicle to, to help other people. And that's what he said to me that first day. And I think, you know, and even recent stuff he's, he, he did. You saw, I think, that acceptance of, you know what, I'm good. I'm good. I've I've done that. That's come to me. I've helped people. I've affected people. And they, you know, you can't take that away. And it would it would not absolve his sins. Cause look, you're talking about somebody who's, you know, he's hurt a lot of people. People who are close to him. And so he wasn't looking for a pass, but he absolutely would would feel that, you know, the the good he gave folks outweighed that. And yeah, he had a big sentence that I've tried to, I've, John, I've tried to use in my own life plenty enough, and I don't know if I can pull it off, but, you know, it's not about your actions. It's about the intention behind your actions. And that's, that's a debatable point, right? I mean, you know, every sinner would love that to be the case. Well, I didn't mean it. <laughs> right. It, it didn't come from a bad place. It didn't come from a malicious place, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a really revealing way to understand DMX kind of after the fall, right? So DMX, let's say by the mid 2000s is no longer, you know, he's on the, you know, he's not on top of the charts and the arrests are really frequent. The, the struggles with drugs are becoming more public, better known, but there was always something. And I think that I was always su not surprised, but Oftentimes when someone has a fall from grace and bad things start happening to them, they become a public punchline, right? Like that's how cruel people are. It's like we knock somebody off the pedestal and now we're going to clown them. I never felt like X was reduced to a punchline because I always felt like what people saw in X was a good man who was broken, a good man who was struggling. and they granted him the space to be unwell or to perhaps to make mistakes. You said, you know, he didn't treat everybody great all the time. You know, there are errors in judgment, certainly. But I never felt like people turned on X. 
And I wonder if that was something that, you know, you were watching because this your book came out in 02. So, you know, in the in the three or four or five years later, things changed drastically for him. And I wonder from your perspective, do you feel like people ever turned on him? I don't. And it doesn't surprise me that that they didn't. And I think it's because of, of that realness. Like he he was broke. He was broken when we met him, you know, and I think part of his authenticity was like everything I gained didn't actually fix me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you saw me blow up. You saw me become famous. You saw me fulfill my music dreams. You saw me become a star. You saw me clean up. You saw me make money. But, you know, he never said that fixed him. You know, you hear artists now in some ways trying to be similarly vulnerable. And I'm not saying you don't believe them, but there's a lot of truth to that, right? Like, all of that kind of doesn't matter. You're like, really, dude? Like, it looks like it should matter, you know? But I think X never was, he never had that vanity. You know, and so you could you believed him when he said, yo, I don't I would give this all up. I don't care. I'm still me. I'm still grimy. I'm still X. Like and so, but yes, powerful, I, I, what you said, it didn't fix him. It didn't fix him. He was the most popular, probably pop musician on the planet for two years, three years. And it didn't fix him. It didn't heal him. And he still performed at that high level carrying all of those struggles to the very top. But you know what it did do? It, it, it did not fix him, but it did give his life a purpose. It really did. And he's like, you know, and my purpose to be this broken angel, you know? And, and in fact, if I fix it too much, you know, there was a moment there where he, he was kind of cleaned up and, and hadn't been to jail in a while. It's crazy if that sounds. And he's like, yo, like, am I, how am I going to stay? Like, where am I getting my input from? I can't be that narrator. I can't just talk about it. I got to live it. And I think that bugged him, you know? And so, I, you know, and he would say a lot of the, the stuff, petty stuff, you know, speeding and this and that and traffic violations. I mean, he was never really doing nothing, but, but I, I think it, it gave him a purpose. And so there was an acceptance that, you know, I am who I'd be until I die either accept it or don't mess with it. But if we dogs and you stuck with it, he's like, where are my dog? I mean, like, if, you know, he's the only rapper who I feel legit to like quote their lyrics as like an on the record. Truth. <laughs> oh, you wow. know what I mean? Wow. Big, no, big facts, big facts, right? Big You're like, facts. I can't quote this dude. That's not real. But I, more than anyone I've, I've ever, you know, had to have the privilege to get close to, or even just as a fan. Last year, there was like a, uh, an interview that that X did with Talib for Talib's podcast, where X talked about the story where Reddy Ron, who is the beatboxer who exposed X to hip hop, basically, and like taught X to beatbox and but also gave him crack, basically, like laced in a blunt and didn't tell him this is when X was 14. And, you know, it was a very moving clip. But X also tells that story in this book. And I wonder Drugs were a persistent issue, and it comes up kind of like over and again in the book. And I, I, how was his conversation about addiction? How much did he talk about that? How much did he think of himself through that lens? Because obviously, certainly as you get into the the 2000s and 2010s, a lot of people publicly are viewing him through that lens. But in your experience, was he thinking about it in those terms? Damien is and was his addiction. That's what the devil was to him. 
that's what he was trying to run away from and, and defeat and ultimately could not. I think he was aware of that. You know, I think he felt powerless to to beat it. And, you know, he made many attempts and close, close people around him made many attempts to clean him up. And that just that addiction never let go. And that is the tragedy of it. I resonate with that. I mean, I have addiction in my family and, you know, my mother's a recovering drug addict and alcoholic and and the amount of effort she puts in to stay that way is, is you know, extraordinary. And he just couldn't get there. He would get there in, for moments. And I used to, you know, tease him or, you know, he used to clean up well. And but he used to, you know, he, he just couldn't just couldn't escape it. But that was the devil to him. He was absolutely right to describe it with such weight. But he saw it. He he knew it. You know, like he he had, there was a relationship there, just like in the you know, it's like in Damien. It's a dialogue. We should listen to that for sure. Let's listen to a little bit of Damien. Why is it every move I make turned out to be a bad uh-huh. one? Where's my guardian angel? Need one? Wish I had yeah. one. I'm right here, shorty, and I'ma hold you down. I'm trying to fuck all these, I'ma show you how. Okay. But who? Name D like you, but my friends call me Damien, and I'ma put you into something uh-huh. about this Damien. You and me can take it there, and you'll be the hottest. And that's a dialogue that whether you're a, you suffer with an addiction or not, you you have that between that that good and that bad. Between am I going to make the the better choice or, or or not? And you know that really resonated with folks. And for him, that was daily. That was a daily battle. And you know you could see it, you could hear it, and you know the people around him didn't ever enable it because there was so much care and love for those who rode with him. You kind of had to, right? You're going to ride or die. You better like this dude. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> like it was too, it was too hardcore. It's too risky to not like really be all in. And he made sure of that, right? He's like, yo, this is going to be a, a high wire act because I'm going to take you there. Like we're going to go and you're going to prove to me that you're not going to betray me, that you, you know, you're strong enough to, to stick around and I'm going to test that. It's funny. I mean, that's what he describes this whole relationship with dogs, this whole unconditional love. You know, you could throw them at the wall and they come right back. Well, he would throw people at the wall like, yo, this is what's up. Like, this is what it means to be my friend or to be my dog, to be someone who says they care about me. Like, I'm going to put you through it. And, you know, a lot of people fell by the wayside with that kind of experience. As you mentioned earlier, it's like he wasn't always treating people warmly and, you know, et cetera. And and it's not like there's like some medal you get for sticking around if somebody's treating you that way. But but, you know, he seemed like a person who loved hard, loved intensely. And if you were allowed into the sphere, if you got got into the bubble, like you were going to feel the full weight of that. And you were, in a sense, responsible for it, I would imagine. You were responsible for it, and and so you became his co-conspirator. You know, you were in that world, and so he knew that there that he had sacrificed more than anyone around him. Or that's how he felt, at least for sure, right? And there's somewhat of a of a you know a, a bit of a conflict, like he, he chip on our shoulder. You know, no one has been through what I've been through, so you're not telling me nothing. And what you think is is a sacrifice, I can double that, triple that. And so, you know, we all got to sacrifice together. And when you think about the people that have been in his life, his whole life, I mean, for decades, they wear the those injuries and they're they're proud to do it because they loved him. And and to your point, John, he loved them back. He really 
really did. There is no one, you know, more loyal. And I think if anyone ever described X as being disloyal, it was because of a of a moment where where the dark overcame the light. And he's like, that's not me, because at his core, he's sensitive and loving and really, you know, like I could like I could make him cry about his mom literally in like two seconds. Like, you know, and I saw them come back together at the moment we went to meet his father, like, you know, that that hug he would get. Yeah, I used to say, you know, the, 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 the desire for him to just get a hug was as strong as the desire to get high. You know, it had to be the hug from the right person. Right, you know? but but, it, but but it's but it's that powerful, that yes. powerful. Yes. Sometimes I feel like you encounter people where it's almost as if, like, and the 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 story you said about his mom, what his mom told you, and you sharing that really reminded me of this. It's like there's this very very firm exterior, but it's like literally you just take the tiniest tiniest pinprick, just the tiniest pinprick, and then the whole thing melts, and. What that tells me about a person is they're carrying intense emotional weight always. They're always vibrating with it. It's always running through their system. And it's literally just, is today going to be the day where someone just like touches me in like exactly the right spot and I just lose it. And X, I felt like was always channeling at that intense level of vibration. And oftentimes he gets it out in a song or gets it out on stage or you tell him that his mom said that she loved him. And then then it's like a gushing letting of feeling. It could be the best day or, or the worst, you know, it was, it was extremes. There was no middle ground. Yeah. Like, is this going to be, is he going to meet someone on the street and vibe and, and go to this amazing spiritual place and, you know, really connect in a way that, that uplifts him for that moment, for a few hours, for that day, that was overwhelmingly possible as was the opposite, you know, in every moment. And so you kind of scanning the environment to say like, how is this going to go down? You know, how's it going down? There's another name of a song. Like what was, you know what I mean? Like what are going to be these triggers? Cause there's no, you know, no half stepping with DMX. Like, you know, like, yes, he, he, everything was hard and hardcore and extreme. And I think he knew that about himself and that's why he protected himself so hard. That's what that bark is like back off. Wow. Yeah. Very true. Before we go, look, you spent loads of time with him that I'm sure is not all the stories are not totally reflected in the book. Are there any specific things that stick in your mind, you know, years later? It's just like, man, you know, if people only knew or, you know, I saw this thing and like it didn't make sense to put it in the book, but it's so revealing. Does anything still stick with you? You know, it's a great question, John. I would actually say his sense of humor you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, I tried my best to put the, the quote unquote most meaningful things. And yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say two things. You know, one is one is for sure his sense of humor. This was a funny dude. I mean, you know, he would own the room with his charisma. He would, you know, he would kind of take all the oxygen out of it. Like he was on court, like he was running it. But he was so funny. I mean, he just could he just have you cracking up day and night. And and that was also some of what attracted people to him. Like, oh, man, I just like hanging out with this. As crazy as that was, you know. And so, you know, I think that's something that probably doesn't come out in the book and, and may not in his public appearances. But that, that was a funny cat. I, I'd say that. And you know, one piece in our interviews is kind of the last week I was out in Arizona with him, which was kind of the last phase of, of, of writing the book. 
and my record button didn't work and I've always regretted it. But we were in the middle of the night. We'd come back from a day of running around and four wheeling and, and at the club and playing pool and just, you know, having an X night, probably call it four thirty, five a.m. And, you know, we'd just come off the highway driving 120 miles an hour. Let me confirm all the rumors. He drives 120 miles <laughs> <Yeah>. an hour. <laughs> I was like, oh, my. I mean, the only way after two years I figured to slow him down is actually start a conversation with him. And he'd kind of slow down to like 90. <laughs> I mean, it was harrowing. <laughs> and, uh, and you couldn't put on your seatbelt. Like, no seatbelt. Like, no, like, seatbelt, you're done. Yeah, you're out the car. You're done. You're it's out the car. You. Like, well, you're not wearing a seatbelt. What are you trying to say? What, you know, I'm going to hurt you. I would never hurt you. <laughs> and, but, but we, so we made it to the side of the road. And he pulled over. And literally, it was just one of the most beautiful dawns if you will and you know arizona has the big sky and and the sky was purple and kind of orange and and i still can't remember what the hell he said but there was just such a wonderful prayer when he got out and you know he gets out the car and we still literally staring at the sky for probably a good 10 15 minutes which was not unusual right it wasn't like oh let's take a picture like he was like yo i feel the spirit i feel i feel god i feel you know so blessed and uh I remember he made me cry for whatever he said. I just can never remember what it was. So this is a story without a punchline, John. That's all right. It really, I just remembered that as like, you know what, we're, we're good. We're good on this. You're an amazing man and artist and individual. And, and, uh, you know, you, you, you're touched and you're touching me and, that's rare. Yeah, it was just so rare for me. And, and I, and I miss him and, and I'm sure he's had those moments many times since, because that's how he lived. He lived so emotionally. But, you know, I, I get even emotional now just remembering that. I just remember standing there like, oh, man, this is, this is a special, special individual. And he wanted to connect to the world in a special way. And, and God bless him. I think he, he absolutely did. It's worth saying Earl's a hell of a book. Look, there have been a lot of rap biographies, autobiographies that have come in the years since. This was still kind of a novelty to do like a full length book about a rapper in 2002. Like that, that wasn't, we're in loads of them. You know, this definitely holds up, definitely sets the bar high. It's like man child in the promised land. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's an intense experience. So I highly recommend everybody you should go out and cop a copy of this and absorb all the gems in here. Smoke. So happy to have you again, terrible circumstances, but so, so grateful to have you on and, and glad to be able to, to chop it up with you about DMX. John, well, thank you for the time. And, you know, I'm just a, a, a conduit as we all are as journalists, right? For other people's stories. And it was lucky for me to be, be the guy to tell his, and this is a triumph, his life, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. And we should emphasize that it's like, obviously the ending is a challenge. It's earlier than we would have expected or, or earlier than we would have hoped not him, though. No, no, true. She was like, oh, I should have been gone at 20. And yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, I think we all feared that that could be the case in any year that this could have been something that happened. Truly, truly a triumphant life. You see the outpouring online, the love, the intensity of feeling and affection. Just a huge, huge, huge triumph. That's X. Never be another. Never be another. True story. That's our show. Thank you to Smokey. Also, a quick shout out to my guy, Brian, at Rap Scenes on Instagram, who came through with the scans of some of the old X cover stories. Uh, anybody who listens to podcasts knows that I have complete sets of every magazine ever. Unfortunately, the 98 to like mid 2000s are in storage and I couldn't get to them. My guy, Brian, came through with the scans of those. Thank you so much for that. 
listen to every podcast ever, nytimes.com slash podcast. Email us, podcastnytimes.com. Get on the Facebook group. Get in the Discord where maybe you will see me at some point. And subscribe anywhere you get your audio content, Apple, Spotify, etc. Our producer is Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Let's go out with just an indelible stolen cold classic. This is Get At Me, Dog. Where my dogs at? What must I go through to show you is real? And I ain't really never gave a fuck is fair. Rob and I still, not cause I want to, cause I have to. And don't make me show you with the Mac. If you don't know by now, then you slip. I'm on some bullshit that's got me jacking.